The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Hey, I also I appreciate Pastor Bill's prayer because one of the things that he prayed is uh, a reminder that we're here, part of why, obviously we're here to worship the Lord. He's called us to worship him, but we're a family and we're to encourage one another. And it's hard for it's harder for some people to actually be here than others. You, know, you think of uh, families affected by disability or, or single moms, uh, situations like that. So I just want to remind you, with that in mind, you know our tendency, when we hear a noise behind us, some of you have heard this over the years, some of you are new, but I just want to remind you, here's a characteristic of our church that we really need to work on, which is if there's noise going on behind you, don't turn around and look, because what that ends up doing is it makes that mom feel terrible, makes that parent feel um, like you're angry at them. And we want people to be encouraged and welcomed and not worry about, if your kids make noise, don't worry about it. We need to be a a church family that is just used to it, whether it's a, a child affected by disability or or whatever, we're not bothered by those things. So don't worry about that. Um, uh, also, I would say, parents of children, you know, train them to sit if they sit through the worship service. Don't let them go run all over the place, but, but we need to be gracious to one another. Another thing is, I love having everyone together for a single service, but... Um, what we don't have in doing this is that in-between service time where we encourage everyone to stay and get to know one another. We don't have, so you need to be really, really, really intentional. Either show up early or do both. Show up early, but don't rush off. Um, don't just look for your friends that you already know. Build relationships. We have to be intentional. We're not a church that has the the, um, the typical time in the worship service. Okay, everybody, please stand and greet the person next to you. And you shake someone's hand, and then you go back to singing, and that's about all there is. Uh, we don't want to manufacture those kinds of things. We want real relationships. So make that intentional. Um, okay, it's so good to be together. Uh, you know, way back in 2019... Wait, it seems like forever ago. I want to read something to you, and I, and, and I say that because what he says is, it's just, it's been amp, this has been amplified tenfold um, in the last year, in the last six months, certainly in the last three years. But from um, a guy named Scott Swain, I shouldn't say a guy, he's the president of Reformed Theological Seminary, Scott Swain wrote this. We live in an age of outrage, an age when anger inflames our public discourse, disrupts our families, and distorts the church's witness to the world. If the vice of anger is among the severest spiritual afflictions of our age, then the virtue of gentleness is among the most needful spiritual medicines. Far from weakness or mere niceness, gentleness is self-mastery flowing from humility and the fear of the Lord. Christians 
Cultivate gentleness in union with Christ, the fountain of all gentleness, who gently invites us to draw freely upon his inexhaustible fullness. That's just been rattling around in my brain, applying that to so many areas to where I have access to the fullness of Christ when it comes to how I respond or in areas of self-discipline. And we think about the... I share this not because... um, you know, I share this because when we read of the, the interaction, our text, by the way, I should say, is uh, John 19, and you'll want, Bible, you'll want your Bible in front of you. We're going to cover a big section of, of Scripture. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in back. But I share it because when we read of this interaction in our text between Jesus and Pilate and the Jews when we see the injustice of it all, the abuse, the, the false shame that's heaped upon Jesus, the, the torture, the crucifixion itself, when we remember just who Jesus is and that he is, he is able to stop it. He has the ability to stop it, but he chooses not to. We're reminded of the incredible restraint the intentional purpose, the, the gentleness, the, that self-control, the gentleness, the humility of Christ. Jesus willingly died as a sacrifice in order to save us. He knew the eternal consequences of what he was about, but he was still a man. He was still a man who needed to respond with incredible restraint Because he was also a man who could speak a word that would result with all of his captors falling to the ground. He was a man who could demand and execute justice. And yet, for a greater purpose, he chose not to. Incredible restraint. This is not a message about restraint or gentleness. Or when it's right for us to respond with a righteous anger, and there are times for that. No, I simply want us to consider how amazing Jesus is. That's my aim. I just want us to consider how amazing Jesus is, to stand in awe of him. This morning I want to work through... uh, various details in our text, I want to marvel at two things. Jesus' willingness to continue and the fact that God is in absolute control of the details. Jesus' willing sacrifice and the sovereignty of God. Let's be in awe. Let's be amazed. Let's marvel at these. And, and if there's an application, apply it to your worship. Appreciate the cross all the more. Recognize and and find comfort in the truth that our God is not only in control of these events that we're going to read about, but he's, he's sovereign over your circumstances as well. So before we go to God's word, let's, let's pray. Our great and glorious God, creator of the heavens and the earth,
our gracious Savior, we, we give thanks for your word, which is living and active and, and cuts to the truth. May your spirit refresh us with a growing awe of Jesus that we might respond with increased worship, a greater desire to come and draw freely upon his inexhaustible fullness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Again, John writes with a lot of irony. And the reason that he does is to highlight the reality of who Jesus is in the midst of blind and arrogant men. We remember things like Caiaphas, the high priest, justifying the murder of Jesus by saying, it's better that one man should die for the people instead of the whole nation perishing. An incredible truth of Jesus dying for many that he did not intend. Or Pilate saying to Jesus, don't you realize who I am? That I have the authority to release you or crucify you? John gives us this detail to emphasize what Pilate is blind to. That God is in charge. He is sovereign. That Jesus is not forced, but is willingly enduring all of this in order to be our Savior. So as we read John 19, remember the sovereignty of God, that this is his plan And the willing sacrifice of Jesus. If you're able, please stand as we read God's word. John 19, verses 12 to 22. So from this point on, Pilate sought to release Jesus. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answers, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. And when he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, there they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. 
This is God's word. You may be seated. You see the humility, the strength of his gentleness as he endures what he is capable of avoiding. You see the sovereignty of God with details prophesied hundreds of years in advance. Let's work our way back through the text and highlight some of these things. Look at verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Read this with two perspectives in mind. Pilate's and God's. Pilate wanted to release him. And yet, from the perspective of God's sovereign plan, we might say that he couldn't. We know that Jesus will go to the cross. It's God's plan. Yes, Pilate wanted to release Jesus because he knew that he was innocent, because he despised the Jews, because he knew that They were only using him for their wicked motives because he was prideful and he didn't want the Jews to have any satisfaction in this. So he wanted to release Jesus. He had several motives, but he didn't release Jesus, we know, because of another reason, that being fear. There was a threat from the Jews. that They would tell Caesar that Pilate released an insurrectionist who claims to be king. Something that Pilate knew would would be a threat to paranoid Caesar, something that would result in at least a demotion, if not his own execution. This is what we see from a human perspective. But God's word reveals a greater cosmic perspective in Acts 4. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Pilate and the others were gathered here by God And they did what he ordained them to do. The bigger unseen reason that Pilate didn't release Jesus is because of God's sovereign plan. He predetermined, his predetermined will was that these things take place. So it's important for us to keep this in mind. That God planned God predestined everything that Pilate did and ultimately decided to do. And this resulted in the death of Jesus. Okay. Now that's hard to comprehend, isn't it? Yes, it is. this is hard to comprehend. But it's true. It's what God's word plainly tells us. And it should be a great comfort to know that God has this level of control, that, that none of these events were random. That Jesus' death 
was not simply given over to men, leaving God hoping that they'd do what he prophesied thousands of years earlier that they would do. Thankfully, this was not the case. Thankfully, our eternal salvation was not a matter of wishful thinking and waiting and then reacting on God's part. Okay. Yes, yes, this is hard to comprehend. Yes, reconciling people's decisions and being responsible for those decisions with the sovereign plan of God is a mystery. And no, it's not my intention to try and explain it to you this morning. But if you want to talk about it, I'd love to. No, this morning, I only want to point out the amazing truth given to us in God's word. This is what he did. And whether we comprehend it or not, our only right response is to be in awe of him and worship him and be confident in him and not rob him of his glory. And a related response is to realize that this is not This is not an isolated circumstance of his providence. But the details prophesied involve many details beforehand that must all fall into place for God to do what he said he would do. Have you heard the poem or proverb, For Want of a Nail? For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the message was lost. For want of a message, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. All for the want of a horseshoe nail. The providence of God is complicated. And we should recognize that one fulfillment involves many prior details that he also must control. Psalm 22 describes details of Jesus' crucifixion written hundreds of years before the Persians invented it and then the Romans perfected it. Details of his hands and feet being pierced. Details of his, his garments being divided. A detail of Casting lots for his tunic, something the soldiers wouldn't normally do. But what they would normally do is just rip it into four pieces and and share it. But Jesus' tunic was woven into one piece. And so it was valuable. And they gambled over it. God controlled even the detail of how Jesus' tunic was made because he prophesied that it would be gambled over in order to fulfill this description in Psalm 22. And again, our God is not only in control of these details. He is sovereign over every detail, including your decision made including your decision made 2,000 years after the crucifixion. Yes, it's mysterious. Yes, it's beyond 
our comprehension. And yes, this is what God tells us he did. From your perspective, you made a decision to repent of your sins and trust Jesus. But God also declares that he is the one who decided to love you first. He is the one who determined your destiny and called you to life in Christ and made you right with God and will bring you to an eternal life of glory. So be mystified, but don't deny who God says that he is. Take joy in the fact that he is not easily comprehended, that he is beyond us and will forever cause us to be amazed and in awe. This is good news for your eternal state. You will never be bored. You will always be amazed and learning and in awe. It may not make sense to you, but take comfort in the truth that God has promised to work all things, all things for the good of those who are his. God is a God who plans and predestines every detail of his creation. If his word says that he planned and predestined the actions of Pilate and Herod and all of the people who abused and killed Jesus, then certainly he does not simply respond to a circumstance. He does not respond and fix circumstances that occur in your life, turning them for good. No, he works, he plans, he predestines all of the details for the outcome that will eventually be your good. The things that happened to Jesus were not good, but they were necessary to accomplish the greatest good that has ever occurred, and this same principle is true in your life. It doesn't mean that you are to call evil good or that you need to understand how this works. But it does mean that you trust God to do what he promises and that you know deep within your soul that he is worthy of your praise and confidence and hope. Pilate did what he did and God planned it. He predestined it. And this is awe-inspiring. It's faith-building. Let's look for more. Look at verses 13 through 16. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement. And in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The judge of the universe. The one who will one day judge all people is brought before his own people 
to receive Pilate's cowardly, sinful judgment. He is mocked as their king, and yet he truly is their king. The king of all kings, and they pronounce judgment on him. And it should send a chill up our spine as we realize that one day Pilate will stand before the throne of Jesus. And Pilate will remember that this is the one to whom he said, do you not know who I am? Do you realize I have authority over you? And the tables will be turned Jesus will judge Pilate, and Pilate will realize his arrogance and the foolishness of his plans. This is the epitome of Psalm 20, or Psalm 2. This is the epitome of Psalm 2, where we read that the nations rage and the people's plot in vain, and the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And once again, we should realize God's perspective. And if we read on in Psalm 2, we see God's reaction. Is this a threat to God? Does he brace himself for a fight? Does he he concern himself with a strategy or, or how he will respond to their actions and try and turn them into something good? No. The psalm says, He laughs. He laughs and holds them in derision, or he sees this as utterly ridiculous. And to what would we even compare this? Any illustration falls woefully short. It's a a different category of ridiculous. An ant shaking its fist if they make fists at us. Um, a toddler challenging Steph Curry to a game of horse. Me, me challenging Annabelle Getman to a bake-off. Impossible. They're all ridiculous. Laughable. Yet not even close to finite man daring to challenge the eternal creator who allows each second of their existence. Humanly speaking... This trial of Jesus before an angry mob, it's a terrifying scene. But when we remember God's perspective, we see Jesus willingly giving himself, exercising incredible restraint for the sake of God's plan, God's will to love us and reconcile us to himself. And verse 14 describes the timing of these events. The day of preparation of the Passover where thousands of lambs were prepared to be slaughtered, their blood being spilt, remembering the first Passover in Egypt as God passed over the guilt of their sin because of the blood, because of the sacrifice, which ultimately pointed to this very day when the true Lamb of God would shed his blood to atone for the sins of his people, finally crushing the head of the serpent, dealing with the problem of sin, reconciling his people to God, and these lambs being prepared 
as these lambs are being prepared, Jesus is being prepared. As their blood is spilt, his blood is spilt. As they point to the promised one, Jesus fulfills the promise of God. But the promise is according to faith. Pilate presents Jesus to his people saying, Behold your king. And instead of receiving him, they reject him, crying out, Away with him, crucify him. The Lamb of God rejected as they prepare for Passover. Their promised king rejected as they blaspheme God, knowing that God is Israel's true and only king, but they say we have no king but Caesar. One author comments that this renunciation of Jesus is nothing less than the abandonment of the messianic hope of Israel. Their repudiation of the promise of the kingdom of God with which the gift of the Messiah is inseparably bound in Jewish faith. What a terrible scene. A warning to all who will not receive Jesus as Lord and King. We read in verses 17 and 18 that Jesus went out bearing his own cross. And again, we're reminded of God's sovereign attention to details as Jesus was taken outside the city to die, just as the Israelites had for centuries cast away the remains of the sin offering outside the walls, or as the carcasses were disposed of outside the camp. So Jesus' crucifixion being outside the city is the fulfillment of this detail. Another detail we see is that Jesus carries his own cross. Typically, this would have been the cross beam as the vertical portion of the cross would have been planted in the ground. And God's word is amazing. As, as many have seen something similar in the story of Abraham's son, Isaac, carrying the wood on his back for the sacrifice that God commanded of him. Isaac asked his father, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb? And in faith, Abraham replied, God will provide for himself the lamb. And we know that Abraham was willing to offer his own son, but God provided a ram instead. Jesus is the ultimate substitute, the ultimate sacrifice, who carries the wood upon his back, stretching out his arms, being God's sacrifice provided for us. And another detail that we read is that they crucified Jesus with two others, one on either side. We learn from the other Gospels that these two were thieves, or as some have suggested, their thievery was likely a part of being insurrectionists, probably associates of Barabbas. And so Jesus literally took his place between them. But why does John give this detail? 
Well, it communicates the fulfillment of Isaiah 53.12. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And again, we see God's sovereign attention to details as the Romans likely put Jesus between these two to shame him, to communicate that he was dying as an insurrectionist, a crime that he had been acquitted of. And we also remember that all throughout Jesus' ministry, they scoffed at him. They accused him of being a sinner because he associated with sinners. And how did Jesus reply? He said, I came not to call the righteous, as if that existed. I, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Leon Morris writes, for the writers of the Gospels, this was not an insult, but the expression of an important truth. Jesus came to save sinners. He died to save them. And the fact that on the cross he hung between people who were obviously grievous sinners graphically illustrated that truth. His death was a death on behalf of sinners. And his position when he died brought that out for those who had eyes to see. And verses 19 through 22 tell us of another irony, another circumstance where we see people's motives and yet God sovereignly communicates a greater reality. Pilate has an inscription put on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It's one last jab at the Jewish leaders communicating for all to see that that Jesus is what the Jews ultimately wanted him killed for. It declared shame upon them. This was Pilate's intention anyway. And yet God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He orchestrates this detail for the honor of his son and that it would be plain for all to see. One commentator wrote, a king conquers. He provides rules and makes peace. Christ, our king, conquered our enemy, the devil. Provided forgiveness for our sins. Rules in our hearts. And makes peace between sinners and God. All these kingly deeds Jesus achieved by dying on the cross for us. So it is proper for him to have been hailed as king here. And we read that this inscription was written in Aramaic, Latin, and in Greek, which means that it was for all the world to see and understand the reason for his death. Matthew Henry notes that Aramaic was a language of God's revelation, and Latin a language of power, and Greek, the language of wisdom. And so in each of these languages, Christ is proclaimed king in whom are hidden all the treasures of revelation, wisdom, and power. By giving us the the detail of, of these languages, John intends to communicate that Jesus is a king for everyone. He's the savior of all peoples of the world. Through this inscription, 
God sovereignly declares the true righteousness and glory and dominion of his son. And no amount of indignation on the part of the Jewish leaders would change this. This time, Pilate would not bend to their wishes. And yet we know that it was ultimately God's sovereign will. Pilate had his motives. The Jewish leaders had theirs. Jesus did what he was committed to do. And the Father's sovereign will is perfectly, in each and every detail, accomplished. And when we reflect on this inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, we see that Pilate didn't care to know the truth. The Jewish leaders objected to the truth, but Jesus willingly died as the ultimate king, conquering our ultimate enemy, providing for our greatest need, ruling by changing our hearts, and he has made peace between us and God. And we see that God intended it all for his glory and our good. For some, the cross is foolishness. And it smells of death. And for others, it's a fragrance from life to life. And with this in mind, we have two more examples. One's on each side of Jesus on the cross. One of them railed at Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are Under the same sentence of condemnation, we're getting what we deserve. What our deeds have earned us. But this man has done nothing wrong. One didn't believe Jesus was the king. The other evidently did. Because what did he say next? He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, you are the king headed to your kingdom Jesus, when you arrive, would you please remember me? Please have pity on me. Allow me to be in your kingdom. Approaching approaching death, this man perceived the majesty of Jesus and called out for the king to save him. And Jesus replied with a royal decree of grace, saying, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We're meant to be in awe of this. To see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To marvel at him, to worship him, to grow in our confidence and eternal hope because of him. To face the various trials and sufferings with him in mind and with the, with the knowledge that just as God the Father was sovereign over every detail, likewise he has spoken and promised you that he's working all things for your good. He works the same way in the details of your life as he did in the details of the life and suffering of his own son. Not because our circumstances are equal by any means, but because this is who God is. 
He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's promised. His promises are true. In light of this, I hope we can see, oh, how offensive and truly sad it is for so many people in our day to object to Jesus because, well, certainly there should be another way, right? To want something more than the unique Son of God, the glorious King of Kings, the God-man Jesus Christ who so incredibly bears with people in such strength of gentleness. Why would you look elsewhere? It's sad. There's no one like him. No one compares. So when we see him in his glorious perfection, why? Why look? Why want anyone else? No one else has done what he's done. No one else has lived an absolutely perfect, sinless life. No one compares. No one compares to his compassion, his wisdom, his graciousness, his love. No one else has showed such power and restraint. No one else suffered the wrath of God for you. Dying in your place. No one else defeated death proving himself by rising from the dead. There's no one like Jesus. So why would people want to look or even think to look anywhere else? There aren't any other ways to God. No other Savior but the only Son of God graciously sent to save you. And we know this because Jesus, the one who proved himself, said there is no other way to God but himself. He's the only way. So it's incredibly sad for anyone to look for another way. It's sad because we've seen this in our text. In Pilate, who was controlled by his fear of man and was cynical about anything being true, it's heartbreaking because some are like this. Some are like these Jewish leaders who reject the best, most glorious king of all, wanting to create their own kingdom, and yet unable to conquer sin and death, unable to provide anything good, unable to rule their own hearts in doing what's right, unable to make peace with the one they will stand before and give an account. But one people do see, They see that Jesus loved them unlike anyone else. So much that he willingly took upon himself false shame, abuse, cruelty, rejection, torture, death. He endured this for us in order to save us. In order to remove or pay the penalty that we deserve so that we might be forgiven, so that we might have life in a kingdom with no more pain, suffering, tears, sin, no more death. So behold your king. Stand in awe. 
worship him, live in hope because God is sovereign and good. Let's pray. God, you are so good. You are so gracious to us. You are beyond our comprehension. You are sovereign in all things, and we are amazed at your love and the love of your son, Jesus. To endure all that he did, to fulfill all that you predestined to take place, to rule in our hearts and give us eternal life with you. Lord God, grow our awe and appreciation for these truths. Cause us to give you the praise that you deserve, to worship you with our very lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.